0: All right, we're going to start today with a little test. I'm going to give you a quote, seven-word quote. And don't, don't shout it out or anything. Don't give it away if you know what it is. You can figure out who it is. It's going to be a multiple-choice test, so don't worry. And if you get it wrong, the people next to you will ridicule you, but don't let that bother you, okay? It's <laughs> because you've got to fight. Fight, resist. You've got to resist. All right, so here it is. Uh, prepare to be assimilated. Resistance is futile. Where does that come from? All right, that's the question. Now it's multiple choice. So the first, first possible answer is A, my last words at every pizza with the pastor luncheon. <laughs> Maybe today, okay. B, a message I received on my computer screen that our IT security traced back to Russia. It could be a very scary experience. Or C, The Borg from Star Trek The Next Generation. All right, to get your answer, I'm going to play a recording of the person who spoke those words. We are the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. It was the Borg. I bet you didn't know that. Uh, Terrible villains. Uh, In in case you didn't understand that, because it isn't the clearest uh, thing, it's we are the Borg, prepare to be assimilated. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. It's a harrowing enemy. It's a (laughs) scary, powerful enemy who steals... Uh, if you ever watch the show, uh, steals the individuality out of people, puts them in a kind of a hive mentality, but also they become like zombie robots that accomplish what the hive wants. That's the idea there. And when we um, identify, when they identify you, as they go throughout the universe, when they identify you, they, they assimilate you and they assimilate the entire, stra- the, the entire population, and they've done that in the story. I, I, I actually watch a 12-minute video on the history of the Borg. It's was, it was fascinating, and um, they just take little clues from Star Trek, and they show you they started in about our 1400s or something like that. Is first known uh, taking of a species. So, anyways, they take over the species, and. Uh, and, and part of their strategy is to get you to despair because, you know, they just keep taking over species after species, and they tell you resistance is futile. Now, of course, the Enterprise resistes, resists, and they eventually defeat the Borg, although the video I saw said, hmm, are they really completely defeated? And uh, somehow, even Captain Jean-Luc Picard, uh, who is taken over by the uh, Borg, is able to reassimilate into regular humanity. So resistance, uh, why are we talking about this? Because resistance to assimilation <laughs> into the larger society is a major theme in the Bible. It really is uh, a major theme in the Bible. So it starts really early on when the Israelites are called by God, the descendants of Abraham, to go into the promised land. And one of the, like to use Star Trek language, the prime directive, I think that's Star Trek language, the prime directive is do not assimilate with the Canaanites, do not become a Canaanite. And uh, many do, in fact, one of, the, one of the kind of object lessons in scripture, it's a tragic object lesson, is that after Israel splits into two nations, the northern part, which is called Israel, uh, 10 tribes of Israel there, they get defeated by the Assyrians and the Assyrians are experts at assimilating populations. And what happens is basically the 10 tribes of Israel, the northern Israel, uh, virtually disappear from the face of the earth. They just get assimilated and gone, forget about God, and you don't hear uh, anything more about them in the Bible or in history. And so that's the sad story. That's the tragic story. Uh, But the Jews of the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, and there's two tribes there, Judah and Benjamin, um, they're defeated by the Babylonians. But for uh, some reasons that we may go into later on in this series, um, they do not... Assimilate, or they do not completely assimilate, and they keep their distinctiveness. It's what the story of Daniel in the Bible is about. It's about some of those Jews that are taken into exile into Babylon, and in spite of Babylonians, you know, heroic attempts to try to assimilate them into their culture, they fight assimilation in every in every way. We get to Jesus, and what does Jesus teach? He teaches that we should not be. Like everyone else, if we're a disciple, we should be his and we should live in his way, not in other people's way. There, may be, there might be overlap, but he says there is a unique way of living when you're a follower of me. And that goes against, in his context, the predominant religious society of his day. It's a huge part of Jesus' teaching. He even warns, when you follow me and you go out into the world, people are going to even persecute you to try to make you more like them. And you need to resist and God will help you in that. The rest of the New Testament is a call for Christians to resist assimilation. The apostles constantly remind us that this world is not our own. We're reminded that we belong to a different kingdom and that we are followers of a different king, we're followers of Jesus, that our primary allegiance is to him, that our citizenship is in heaven and therefore we, The scripture says we are actually, as Christians, living in exile. And when we don't understand that we are living in exile, we assimilate into the culture in ways that we should not assimilate. We are sojourners, we're told in the New Testament, in this world. But resistance is tricky for Christians. And it's difficult, it's oftentimes costly, because God doesn't call us as Christians to simply... Kind of retreat from the world, just kind of uh, go go to the mountains or uh, stay in the city, but just get around people who are just like you and forget about everyone else. Like get into the ark and let everyone else drown. That's not the call on Christians. On Christians, the call is the same call that the prophet Jeremiah gave the exiles going to Babylon, which was work for the good of the city, build homes, get jobs, marry. Work for the good of the city. We're called to be good citizens in whatever nation we belong to around the earth. To, to the greatest degree possible without compromising our faith. And he calls us, God calls us to be witnesses. Go into all the world and witness to my truth, to the gospel. Witness to me, to what Jesus did on the cross. We're called to be witnesses to lead others into a relationship with God. That's a calling on our lives. So in the Old Testament Daniel was the like the archetype of resistance while living in exile far away from the Promised Land, far away from Jerusalem, far away from Judah. He and his friends work for the Emperor and they work for the good of the city. But when necessary what happens? They're willing to go to a lion's den. They're willing to go into a fiery furnace in order to not be assimilated into the culture. But one of the things that makes the book of Esther so absolutely fascinating and instructive for us is that Esther and her adoptive father, Mordecai, who's actually her cousin, we're going to learn, but is older than she is and adopts her when her parents are killed, um, that Esther and Mordecai are not like Daniel at all when we get introduced to them at the very beginning of the story, and we're going to see this next week when they're introduced, uh, they barely retain their Jewishness. seems that they've kept some kind of, um, uh, you know, cultural identity and ethnic identity in the midst of the Assyrians. But when it comes to their relationship with God, it's it's like non-existent. When it comes to the standards that they live by, it's like the rest of the Assyrians. And uh, Esther... And her fellow, Esther is among those, and Mordecai are among those Jews who, when given an opportunity a couple generations before this to return to the promised land, to return to Jerusalem, they choose to stay where they're at. Now, they're not condemned for doing that, but you see some of the results of the assimilation that is happening in their lives. In fact, the book of Esther, one of the most interesting aspects of it is that God is never once mentioned in the entire book of Esther. So uh, Esther and Mordecai, as we're going to see next week, are Persians, I mean they are well integrated into Persian society. They live by Persian standards and they are practically speaking, they're assimilated. The story of Esther is a story of how they find their way back to God, it's instructive for us. Uh, But we're ahead of ourselves a little bit because they don't appear until next week Uh, Chapter one sets up the rest of the story, so we're going to be reading chapter one today and setting up the rest of the story, and it explains how it is that Esther is going to face a, if you don't know the story, a fateful moment where she's going to either have to stand up for God and for his people and for a different way of life uh, or, um, or not, and she does it for fear of her own life. But the way the story is set up is instructive in and of itself, the way it's set up, this chapter. Because it describes, in many ways, a world very much like our own, and it describes it using satire. All right, so chapter one is gonna make all kinds of connections with us, because it's gonna, use, it's gonna tell the story using satire, and it's also gonna tell the story um, in a way that you're gonna go, that's not very different from our world. Now, if you look up the word satire, on Google, here's the first definition that came up. It says, the use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices. Particularly in the context of contemporary politics or other topical issues. So I I thought of an example of satire uh, this morning. So let's, let's say a newspaper wanted to do a satirical story this morning in the Sunday paper, okay? And they put it and, well, they said they didn't put it in the sports section. Put it th- they put it in the religious section. And the story is all about an atheist in the religious section. And this atheist is a huge Vikings fan. And this atheist, everything comes out of his mouth. He's saying he truly believes that the Vikings are going to win the Super Bowl this year. That's satire. <laughs> he's asked... Do you ever, we know you're an atheist, but do you ever pray that the Vikings will win the Super Bowl? No, that would be crazy. But you believe they're going to win the Super Bowl. Yeah, that's not crazy. All right, so anyways, a lot of Vikings fans. I'm a Vikings fan, okay, so that's why I'm allowed to say that. Uh, Okay, so speaking about Esther, commentator Ian Duguid uh, says this. He says, Esther satirizes the empire, mocking its claims to power and authority. Satire takes the object of fear, the empire, the authority, and makes fun of it, showing its ridiculous side. The book is meant to make us laugh. For oppressed and powerless people, satire is a key weapon, cutting the vaunted splendor of the empire down to size. If the people once perceive that the emperor indeed has no clothes, then the empire's power to command obedience and instill fear is broken, and I have no doubt that Ian Duguid is right uh, about that. Uh, Most commentators say there are a lot of elements, the way that this story is written, there are a lot of elements, especially this first chapter, a lot of elements of satire, and once you know that, you can't not see it. (laughs) Uh, Once you know that, you cannot see it anymore, so watch for it as I read through chapter one of Esther. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. Powerful man, the most powerful man on earth. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his man. This is a six-month party. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on the mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother-of-pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished." Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carca. I'm going to try to pronounce all these because it's part of the the power of the story. uh, as these people are just laid out constantly. Who are these influential people? To bring before him Queen, queen Vashti. So he sends seven eunuchs to go get the queen and to tell her that she is to wear her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles for she was lovely to look at. But when attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary to consult for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times. Okay, that's, that's, that's satire. <laughs> the king's wife doesn't listen to him, and so he is going to consult the experts in the kingdom. So, the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshina, Shethar... Admatha, Tarshish, Miras, Marsena, and Mamukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who were special who had special access to the king, and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? He asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have get taken to her. Then Mamukan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but against all the nobles and all the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day the Persians and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct, will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. The whole kingdom is gonna fall apart. (laughs) Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. And let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mamukan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household, using his native tongue. All right. This whole series is really going to be about resistance. And today's sermon is called Resistance is Not <laughs> Futile. Um, it's a series about resistance. It's a series about uh, finding our way back to God after we drift. And we are, as human beings, constantly drifting away from uh, God's kingdom, to living for other kingdoms, um, uh, other, other than God, and we find ourselves in many, many ways virtually indistinguishable from other people, uh, especially in ways that we're not, we are supposed to be distinguished from other people. So how do we resist? Uh, today we're going to focus on one way, we're going to give three, and, and basically uh, the second and the third I'm just going to touch on, but it's what really the rest of the book is about. So the first one is the way of laughter. The way of laughter. Okay, so we don't know. We don't know who wrote the book of Esther. We don't know when it was written. We do know that uh, by the time you get to the end, uh, that one of the purposes of writing Esther is to give the background to a Jewish festival that started as a result of what happens in the book of Esther. There are indications that Esther was written shortly after the events. Uh, Not let's say, hundreds of years later or something like that. So there might be people, some of the first readers of Esther, who were actually alive during the time of this party and during the time of the edict. So let's say there's a Jew living in Persia, not in Susa because you probably would know more of what's happening in the palace, but let's say you live a few hundred miles away. It's a big empire, 127 provinces. You live a few hundred miles away or more from uh susa and you're jewish and you uh what are you what are you going to know about the party you may know that the party exists it might already be legend by then a sixth six month party the word would get around about something like that it's quite likely that you would already have known about the gold and silver couches all right that Word had probably already gotten around about just how, just how rich Xerxes was and how he displayed his riches. and But you could, you could only imagine what would it be like to be at that party. You would have really no idea. What's it like to spend six months in that kind of splendor? To just be eating all you want, drinking the king's wine all you want. You would just be wondering what would that be like. You would have, after the party, you would have received this edict that men must rule in their own homes. And you would not have known the connection, uh, in spite of what the advisors, somebody a few hundred miles away would not have known the connection between what the queen had done and what this edict is. So you'd kind of scratch your head, why why this edict on men ruling in their own homes? And then you'd get together with your friends and talk about the edict, and you would end up actually laughing about the edict. Uh, Men and women alike, like this edict, is going to change what happens in our homes. You know, it would, be, it would just be laughable in so many different ways. There would be so many jokes that would, you know, the stand-up comedians in Persia would be making all kinds of jokes about it on uh, late night TV. It's guaranteed that that would be what would be happening. So here's what Esther does in chapter one. She takes you behind the scenes into riches and splendor uh, in a way that no one had access to. It's almost like a reality show. Right? This is a Persian reality show. We love, America loves reality shows, even though, you know, we know that, I think we know that it's not really depicting reality. <laughs> right? And so, but we love reality shows. Uh, and one of the things that we do get from a lot of reality shows is we get peeks into lifestyles of the rich and famous. And what, you know, what their homes look like and their yachts and... And kind of when they hang out and where they go and all that kind of stuff. That's, that's what we do get. So by the time Esther is finished, uh, the, the J- Jews in Persia would have experienced at least somewhat the equivalent of three of our reality shows. They would have experienced The Bachelor. Um, because what's going to happen in the next chapter is they're going to have a contest for who is going to get to marry The Bachelor, the new Bachelor, who has told his queen to go. Uh, Now, the dark side of the story is, and by the way, just because they're laughable doesn't mean they're not dangerous. Xerxes is dangerous. Uh, Xerxes is powerful. Uh, So the laughter is not to say, don't be careful around Xerxes, all right? But we'll we'll talk in a moment about what, what that laughter is about. But in the story of Xerxes, where he is going to, he's looking for a new wife. He's going to get to try out all kinds of women. And the ones who don't make the cut become part of his harem. So this is the bachelor, but the ones who lose become part of the bachelor's harem. A little bit different than ours. Uh, By the end of this season of Esther, um, they will have experienced something akin to Survivor. (laughs) Except you're going to see that those who lose get impaled on really high poles. All right. So it's a little bit different. Um, and then by the end of Esther season, we'll have experienced uh, Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Except, no, actually, it's going to be exactly like Keeping Up with the Kardashians. I, I, I don't know how it's going to be different because I've never watched it. All right. So reading uh, the books, this, this book, and reading this chapter, the Jews get a sense of, they're getting a peek, and if they're astute, if they're really paying attention, they're getting a peek into the purposelessness, the uh, emptiness of the lives of these nobles, the rich people in their country. Six six month long party (laughs) uh, would cause a person, a regular working person to go, don't these people have anything useful to do with their lives? Even though at the same time, it's, oh, wouldn't that be like, really interesting to participate in that? Um, six month long party. They're like gone from home. They're not doing work. They're partying for six month, six months. And yet the kingdom keeps going on without missing a beat. <laughs> what does that say? <laughs> They're irrelevant. They're not really running things. They're really not that important. That's, that's what's getting across here. They're seeing ridiculous excess, e- excess. So, for example, when we read about gold couches, gold and silver couches, what was your first thought? I, I don't know what you said, but I, my first thought was uncomfortable. <laughs> Who would want... They would think that, okay? Yes, they would go, oh my goodness, he's that rich. But But they would go... Who wants a gold couch? Nobody wants a gold couch, um, unless you're going to sell it. <laughs> you know, then then you want a gold couch. Uh, you see, then also as the story goes, the most important, most powerful man in the nation, not knowing what to do, when his wife says, "No, I'm not going to do what you said to do." He has to he has to consult advisors. He can't send someone to say, "Hey, tell Queen Vashti to show up here with her crown." He sends seven eunuchs, <laughs> all named and then these guys the wisest men in the nation and in the empire come up with a plan that is i guarantee you for the people of his empire laughable like an edict is going to accomplish that okay so this is a kind of sat- satire that should lead to laughing and then laughing at ourselves It should lead to laughing at ourselves because it's meant to lead to laughing at ourselves because assimilation happens because we want to fit in. The typical person reading this party has something going on inside of them that's going, wow, boy, would it be fun to be there. What would it be like to win the lottery and be in that group? We want to experience extreme wealth. We want to experience 180 day parties. We're enticed by political power. We're enticed by economic power. We're often too willing to sacrifice our faith. We're sometimes willing to sacrifice our families. We are often, often willing to sacrifice our values in order to get a taste of what those people had. And we do, we do. We find ourselves sacrificing all kinds of things for money and houses and fame and sports, whatever it might be, grades, whatever it might be. We find ourselves sacrificing for that. And Esther, the book of Esther comes along and says, really? That chapter is meant to say, really, this is what you want? It's kind of of ridiculous, isn't it? It's kind of laughable. Isn't it? Really, look at what your heart is going after that would cause you to become like them. Gotta laugh at yourself. Now you see this in the Bible all the time. You see it in the Old Testament prophets. Uh, In Isaiah 44, for example, we have a depiction of a man who goes out and cuts down a tree. And then he takes part of the wood and he creates a fire to cook his food. Takes another part of it to create a tool, and then he takes that tool and he creates an idol. And then he takes the idol and he puts it on a shelf and he bows down and says, this is my God. (laughs) And it's like, it's not just an indictment of people who bow down to wooden things, it's an indictment of all of us who bow down to anything less than God, who make anything less than God the most important thing in our life. You see it clearly in Jesus. He uses satire um, all the time. Uh, he says, you worry about a lot of things, don't you? Uh, has it ever made you taller if you really worried about how short you are? He says to the Pharisees, he says, you spend a lot of time, you, you're, you, you, you've got your, you're drinking your coffee in the morning, whatever they drank, and a gnat falls in and you strain it out of your drink. Then you go and you swallow a camel. Just ridiculous. It's satire. Um, there's a there's a Christian, uh, 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 a satirical site uh, like a headlines and news site uh, put together by Christians called Babylon B, and some of you may be familiar with it. Uh, they <laughs> Uh, they've been running into trouble lately uh, over and over again because Snopes, the people who check out fake news, keeps doing stories on them saying, that's fake news. And They've called Snopes and said, we're a satirical site. Everything we do is fake news. <laughs> and uh, they say, can't you just have a category that says satirical? You know, it's like, let it go. Um, so they're doing all kinds of s- satirical stories on Snopes these days. Um, it's a problem, by the way, for them, I'm like, I'm listening to this, why is this a problem? Because they seem pretty, a little bit upset about it, and it's because if they get labeled fake news enough, they can't, they'll get blocked from social media. <laughs> and, uh, and so they say, a seems to be a little agenda, because the Onion, which is a secular equivalent of that, doesn't seem to get the same kind of uh, problems that we have. So anyways, um, <clears throat> here are some trending headlines, uh, or not trending headlines, I went back over some headlines, and here are some of them. New Survivor spinoff will follow 20 celebrity Christians to see which one is still a believer in 10 years. Got to know. There's a little insider joke about some people who've renounced their faith recently. But um, Christian man goes on one meal per week diet to reflect Bible reading habits. Too close to home? All right. Uh, Amazon's new predestination prime service just sends you stuff you were going to order anyway. They... They like to make fun of uh, Calvinists on this site. Um, Dave Ramsey bursts through a wall like Kool-Aid Man to stop Christian from using credit card. (laughs) We will be offering in January another uh, Financial Peace University. Uh, Parents fulfill duty to bring kids up in the Lord by dropping them off at youth group for an hour every week. Yeah, they didn't laugh very much last night at that one either. Uh, Congress members to wear barcodes so lobbyists can scan prices. Self-checkout. All right, so that's satire. So here's the question. If, if Esther's truly trying to get us to, to laugh through satire uh, in telling the story, true story, just like if we had a story, I guarantee you there is an atheist Minnesota Vikings fan believing that they're going to win the Super Bowl out there somewhere. The satire is not that it's not true. The satire is that it's it's all too true. Um, So here's the question we need to ask ourselves What's laughable right now in my life? What am I pursuing after that is simply not worth pursuing after? Uh, The second way is the way of mourning. So yeah, we're supposed to laugh. Um, if we don't laugh at ourselves, we've got a problem. But if we just continue laughing and we only laugh at ourselves, we also have a problem. If it doesn't lead to mourning, then when we're just laughing at everybody else, we're just, we're just bigots. We're just just judgmental people. Uh, we're self-righteous. We're, we're blind, basically, about ourselves. It's like Jesus said to the Pharisees after saying things like what he said about the gnat. He says, you guys are blind guides. You can't even see yourself. And so when we see ourselves, if we really love God and we want to be following God and we take seriously what he says, it shouldn't, we shouldn't just laugh. It should be the kind of laughter that, go, that turns to mourning and goes, why is my life like this? Why, why am I doing this? And then um, we're not called, and by the way, mourning is going to play a really important role later in the story of Esther. Um, But then finally, uh, it's the way of repentance and faith. I'm packing a lot into this one, and we're gonna unpack it a lot as we go through this series. Uh, If we simply mourn, if that's where we end, a lot of Christians, we are tempted to just mourn. Uh, We're tempted very much to laugh and be self-righteous. We're tempted to mourn, kind of be broken about our own sin and sometimes stay there, but when we do that, we ruin our influence. Because really, who wants, to, who wants to listen to, who wants to follow somebody who's droopy, anemic, prudish, and miserable all the time because they're so broken about their sin? Um, so many of us portray Christianity in that kind of a way, by the, way, by the things that we say, by, the, by the, the attitude that we carry in our lives. Um, so many of us, uh, we're not going to win the next generation. next generation doesn't want to follow that. If you're a parent who wants to pass on your faith to your kids and there is not a joy that marks your life, in the way that the scripture calls for joy to mark our life, good luck passing on your faith. It's true also for a world that we're called to be witnesses to and to share Christ with. They're not going to listen. Nobody's going to listen to somebody who's miserable all the time. And so broken that they can't experience the assurance of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ and the love of Christ and the joy of Christ. So repentance means a change in direction. It means a change of mind. It means turning from something. In the scripture it's constantly turning from other idols, so-called idols, and turning back to God. Faith isn't just like believing something. Faith is trust. It's living life, trusting God. God, trusting that he has what's best for you, trusting him enough to actually do what he says. And repentance and faith is not a one-time thing. We talk about that here a lot. I want to remind you again, repentance and faith is how we convert to Christianity. It's how we become Christians. But then it becomes a repeating habit in the life of of a believer as we identify more and more idols. And we don't just identify those idols once. Sometimes we identify an idol, we repent, we start living by faith and five minutes later find ourselves there again. One week later, find ourselves. Three years later, find ourselves there again. The whole Christian life is a life of repentance and faith. It's why we are constantly, every single one of us, need to be reminded of the gospel, the story of God. And we need to be reminded of this this incredible, incredible event that happened when Jesus went to the cross for our sins. Our sins. He went to the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. And we're reminded of that each week as we worship in so many different ways. One of those ways is through communion, where we're, we are reminded that His body was broken for us, and His blood was shed so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And so we continue our worship, acknowledging that, receiving that for ourselves, being reminded of that, repenting, and living by faith. Let's pray.